Look with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter 4. Our text for this morning. And briefly, just go with me to prayer. Lord, thank you for the privilege to come to your word. I pray that in the moments ahead, you would bless it, that the people of God will be encouraged, and you would have your way in all of our hearts. It's in the matchless name of Jesus the Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. First Peter 4 and verse 7 is our text for this morning. And I'm just going to step right, probably right here. First uh, Peter 4, 7, and it reads, For the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And if we were to go back to years approximately 1440 B.C., and a group of former slaves have been delivered from the greatest power on earth. As we look at that account, um, something happens as they are camped out. Uh, they have been freed. They have crossed the Red Sea. And the Amalekites come upon them, and there's this great battle that ensues. And how is that battle ultimately successful? It's only successful as the man of God is holding up his hands. And then when doing so, Joshua would prevail over the Amalekites. And when his hands would fall down, then the Amalekites would prevail. And what eventually occurs is they would put rocks under his arms to, to prop up his rocks so that his hands would remain up. And in doing so, the people of God, these former slaves, now prevail in their first military battle. Now, it was a battle that was worth winning, obviously, because now this is in one sense setting the stage for the rest of their journey through the wilderness and also into eventually the promised land. And as Moses has his hands in the air, um, it is symbolic perhaps of a number of things, but most definitely, I believe, symbolic of playing to the Lord saying, will you be on our side? Will you intervene for us? And that is in part what prayer is, that we're coming before the Lord and we're asking him to be on our side, to prevail for us. We're asking that for other people. Lord, would you support that person? Would you show them grace? We ask it for our own souls. God, I need wisdom. I need insight. And at times we even pray for someone, Lord, I'm stricken with this illness. Will you see fit to heal me or my loved one or my neighbor, whatever uh, may be. And I know at times we most definitely pray for our own battles with sin, that is internal battles with the flesh. And we pray, God, would you give me relief from this? Give me strength, give me grace so that I can prevail. It's a battle and we're all in a battle, are we not? And we have already established even in first Peter that the people of God are in a battle. They're being persecuted severely. And with that persecution, the question is, how do, they get, how do they get through it? How will they prevail? And prevailing isn't defeating their enemies, like the people of God in, <clears throat> as they were camp against the Amalekites. It's not defeating them. Uh, Peter doesn't say, here's your strategy to defeat Nero and those that are persecuting you. His strategy is, how do you depend on the Lord in the midst of difficulty? How do you look to Jesus Christ? How do you, in a, 
in the context of the church. How do you behave with one another properly? And this is what Peter is opening in verse 7, this idea that a tone must be set for them by prayer and also tone is set to motivate them to live properly amongst one another. And what is it? He says, the end of all things is near. It's near. So we begin this next section and our study in 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11. And let me just by briefly, by way of review, what we've already covered. In verses 1 through 6, the major heading is the example of Christ calls us to a new life. And this example leads us to God's will. We see that in verses 1 and 2. It leads us to new choices in life. Um, Peter says what? That the time is sufficient for you to have carried out the the desire of the Gentiles. But now you have a new life. Live in that new life. And then the Christ's example leads us to gospel purpose. Now we have this new purpose in life. We can't think about those who have persecuted us. The gospel has been preached for this purpose, he says in verse 6, so that those who have suffered by men and have been ridiculed by men, um, ultimately they will live by the Spirit, even those that are dead. The gospel is preached to them. They've come to faith. Now they are with the Lord. And even if they're still being ridiculed in their grave, it doesn't matter because they're alive in the spirit according to the will of God. And what's great about that, those two verses is there's an assurance that Christ's death and resurrection will assure our vindication because he says that in verse five, that in fact, Christ will judge those who have judged you, he says he will judge the living and the dead and the realization that Christ's death and resurrection will assure our resurrection because we are in him. And according to first um, Peter 3:18, Christ who was put to death in the flesh was made alive in the, in the spirit. And so we who are in him, although we may die in the flesh, we will be alive in the spirit. And now we come to the next part of this passage, beginning in verse 7, obviously going through verse 11, is that's uh, what I've communicated before. How do we look ahead, though? Looking ahead at this passage, and you see, we're going to see the eschaton of Christ calls us to a new life. That's verses 7 through 11. And we need to think eschatologically. And notice that I have this heading uh, above the others, because although the statement And verse 7 is attached to prayer. It's influencing everything else that's in the passage. So he's going to say, if you think eschatologically, that is, if you think that in fact the end of all things is at hand, if you think about the reality that Jesus Christ is coming back again, then you will pray thoughtfully. Then you will love soteriologically. And when I say soteriologically, because the statement which we'll address in several weeks, love covers a multitude of sin. You will also share sacrificially. Why would I hoard these things to myself? Why would I keep it to myself? Jesus Christ is coming back again and his return is imminent. It in fact could be at any moment. And we also, when we think eschatologically or when we think about the future, this reality that Jesus Christ is coming back, we will live responsibly, that each of us has a special gift. We should employ it in serving one another. And then the passage really ends with this thought, live by thinking worshipfully. Uh, If you notice in verse 11, he says, 
so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So this is where we're going in this passage. But for this morning, we're going to stop right in verse 7 and think about this first response to a Savior who is risen and coming back again. So we can say, in fact, we should live eschatologically. The eschaton of Christ calls us to a new life. So let's begin to unfold this passage. Uh, Really, just this verse. Uh, Live by praying thoughtfully. Live by praying thoughtfully. So we ask ourselves a question. Of course, we want to pray thoughtfully, but how do I do that? Well, the first thing we have to do is go back to that opening statement in verse 7, the motivation for a prayerful life. What is the motivation for a prayerful life? And it is, as I already communicated, the end of all things is near. That's influencing everything, and it's most definitely influencing this verse and this call to pray. My motivation to be a thoughtful person of prayer is the reality that Jesus Christ is returning. All things are coming to a head. And this passage, in one sense, it complements what you'll see in 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at 1 Peter 2 with me, briefly. So it's a complement to the thought of 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, where Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. There is that language again in Peter that we're involved in a spiritual warfare. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So again, now, I'm an alien and stranger. That is, my life is not here. So when Peter communicates in chapter 4, verse 11, the end of all things is near, that makes sense. Why am I investing so much of my time and effort in this life. And I should expect that people might slander me or malign me as communicated in chapter four, because I am an alien and I am a stranger in this land. I am simply passing through. Now the world, when they look at us now, they literally think that we're aliens, don't they? You don't belong here. And we don't. This world is not our, it's not our home. And so we will stand out. We stand out because of our worldview. We stand out because of our convictions. We stand out because of the things that we cherish. And we now, perhaps before we cherish, but now we despise. And so they look at us and they say, you are an alien. You are a stranger. In fact, I am. We don't speak their language. You say, what language? The language that is not eternal, they don't speak. We speak in an eternal language. They speak in one that's temporal and the here and now. We don't speak that way. So he says the motivation is this reality of Christ's return. So we can say the motivation to live a Christ-honoring life is grounded in eschatology. Now, eschatology is a topic that creates much interest in people, but it should be more than simply Um, sort of piquing one's curiosity when it comes to things like um, uh, concerning dates and places and people and events. And the writers of the New Testament, this was a primary means to motivate people to live for the Lord. 
Have you ever noticed um, when there is a series on the end times, how the attendance increases? Oh, absolutely. I've seen it here in my years at Grace Community Church. Pastor John does something in the book of Revelation. There are another thousand people there. But he does a series that says, thou shalt be holy for I'm holy. Not quite as much. In the minds of the New Testament writers, those can never be disjointed. I'm going to strive for holiness because, of course, God is, but that's God who is holy is coming back again, and I will have to give an account for my life. This is what he's saying. And people love sort of dates and charts and events, and they love to try to solve things that aren't meant to be solved. Have you ever noticed that as well? I heard, I remember on the radio a long time ago, someone was talking about the end times, and they were making reference to the scripture says that the vultures will be eating the flesh of men. And they said, you know, I was in, and this was now 15, no, it's at least 20 years ago, they were saying that they had been in Israel recently and there were all these vultures that were beginning to gather in the lowlands. So that was a sign that Jesus Christ is coming back again. Oh my, I don't think so. It's not. But we like those things and we like charts and dates and areas where Jesus Christ says no one knows. And we try to create something that's not there. Go back to the text, and what you should note, though, you won't see it um, in your English translation, but as he says, the end of all things is near. It's interesting that Peter in the Greek text has fronted this when he says all things. So he's reading, all things is near. And why does he front it? He's saying here, you need to understand the scope of the resurrected Christ's sovereign reach. So he begins the verse by saying, all things... um, moreover, is near. It is coming to an end. And he does have to say this resurrected Christ who gives you hope because your life is in him, his sovereign reach is absolutely comprehensive. And his sovereign reach is more than simply our salvation. Um, 1 Peter 1.3, and it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And of course, that's a part of his sovereign reach in choosing a people and dying for people. And now he can give us hope because he is a resurrected savior, but his sovereign reach is beyond that. It is God bringing together all events in history and he will close them out. See, verse five, even if you notice chapter four again, Verse 5 assures us that he will judge those who have judged us and judge them in particular because all judgment has been given to the Son. He is ordering all the events under heaven. The resurrected and ascended Christ has set in order the end times. And believers, Paul and um, Peter would say, they should have a greater confidence because the plan of God is in fact unfolding. The plan of God, that in the right time, God would send forth his son, born of a woman, born under the, law, under the law, and he would live a life, and he would heal, and he would preach, and he would teach, and he would feed, and then eventually he would be crucified. But eventually what happened? In three days, he did what? He rose from the dead, And then he spoke to his disciples and he commissioned them and he ascended into heaven. And he will return again as he ascended into heaven. 
he sat down at the right hand of power. Why? Because the father was satisfied with his life, his ministry, and his death. And now he just waits to return again. Everything is in order. And when Jesus Christ returns again in his second coming, he will hasten the events of the future. When I say, well, why do you say hasten? When Jesus Christ returns, there is, in fact, a specific timetable that will begin when Jesus Christ comes again. And we wait on that. See, the sense of imminency in Peter is important. When we say imminency, the sense in which the return of Jesus Christ is imminent. At any moment, the heavens can be opened up. Now, um, notice with me, if you will, 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 3, it says, we read earlier, we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This, it is a living hope because it says, in fact, it is, notice verse 4, it's reserved for us in heaven. Notice verse 5, it will be revealed at the last time. Then notice also verse 7, our faith will honor God at his revelation. That is, um, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter obviously communicates here, although you are suffering and it's difficult and it's hard right now, there is a day when you will be able to praise and honor and give glory to our great God when he is revealed. Don't you look forward to that day? <laughs> I mean, I do, absolutely. When I can praise and honor him in a way that I cannot even now. And notice verse 13, this sense of eminence in Peter. What does he say there? Therefore, prepare your minds for what? Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's focus. And this is what Peter is saying in 1 Peter 4, 7. It requires focus. Now, there's also this. Let me just, we're going to go on a bit of a, a scriptural journey for a moment. And I want to talk about the last hour and our behavior. You remember before I said there is absolutely a connection between thinking about the last hour, the end times, and how we behave. It's prominent throughout scripture. Look with me at Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 11. We're going to look at a number of passages. Romans 13, 11. So the last hour and behavior. Romans 13, Paul writes, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. Then he says, therefore, verse 12, lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. There again is this language of warfare in which you're engaged. And then he says in verse um, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ so that you make no provision for the flesh. So why? Because our salvation is nearer than we first believed, which is true for all of us. It is nearer from that moment. Maybe it was 1975 or it was 1990 or it was 2000 or whatever that date is. Your salvation is nearer to you than that date. And we look forward to it and it should motivate us in one sense to conform our lives to what it will be in the future. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 11, Paul writes, 
Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. And as Paul writes here, yes, there's an example of the Israelites look to them. And at times that example was a poor example. So don't follow it, but nonetheless, learn from it. The end of the ages is at hand. First Corinthians 15, 58, familiar verse, right? Therefore, beloved brethren, be ye steadfast and movable, always doing what? Abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. But that's obviously in the context of what? The assurance of a resurrected Christ. Because he is a resurrected Christ and all things are coming to an end, therefore be steadfast and movable, always abounding. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4 verse 4. He says in verse 5, again, he says, rejoice in verse 4, verse 5, the Lord is near. He communicates. Now, with that sense of nearness, it should motivate you to be a people, according to really verse 8 and 9, that live differently. Go with me, if you will, to James chapter 5. James 5. You would also consider Hebrews 10, 23 to 25, but I'm doing a bit of editing right now. So let's go to James 5, 7 and 8. He says, therefore, be patient, brethren, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soul, being patient about it until it gets the, um, gets the er- early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Live appropriately, he says. Look with me at 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3. Peter says here, all things are going to be destroyed. Therefore, what sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? The statement there is incredibly direct, isn't it? Since this world is going to be destroyed and recreated again, how are we to respond to it? Why do you have t- don't have too much of your life invested here? And he says in verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. And then in verse 14, he says, be diligent to be found in peace, spotless and blameless. Christ is coming again. And of course, we can can communicate um, 1 John 2.18. It is the last hour. And because it is the last hour, many, many antichrists are amongst us. And how do we avoid being duped by an antichrist is to understand the Christ so we can make a proper comparison. Revelation 22 and 10. Well, 1.3 tells us this. He, the things which are written for the time is near. Revelation 22 and 10, the time is near. So there is a direct relationship between our behavior and the coming of the Lord. We are to respond properly to it. Um, How many of you, um, I don't think they do it in baseball, but I know they do it in football. I did it from my days of high school um, perhaps they do it in professional basketball because they have four quarters. Have you ever noticed in a, in a football game or something like that, when it comes to the fourth quarter, you see other guys put four fingers up? Okay, if you haven't before, that's, let me tell you what's happening. George Crawford would know, fellow football player over there. Um, they put four fingers up, and what they're saying, this is it, guys. This is the fourth quarter. Buckle up. Get ready. Give it your all. And at times we would say to one another, leave it on the field. Leave no, bring nothing off the field. 
leave yourself there. And what it meant, I'm going to exert myself at all means possible in this fourth quarter. If we're behind, we can catch up. And if we're ahead, let's stay ahead. Let it be known that I'm going to give my all. And that's what guys are doing when they put up this sort of symbol. They're saying time is now. It's near. We have 15 minutes left. We practice all week. We came to the game on Saturday or Sunday. Uh, we warmed up for about an hour. The, the, we flipped the coin. We won the toss. Time went by first quarter, second quarter, third quarter. And now it's the fourth quarter. It's about to be over. Where we are in this time scale, his coming is imminent. We don't know. So for us, we can all say what? It's the fourth quarter, is it not? It was the fourth quarter since the time we came to faith. That's what the writers are saying. It's nearer than when you first believed. And so the question is, how will we respond to this reality? But I think sometimes um, we live our lives as if we don't think we're in the fourth quarter. Oh, sure, we have a couple more quarters to go. Or maybe we live our lives like we're ahead in the game. Oh, we have nothing to worry about. We have a huge lead, and I've seen teams blow a lead. I, I heard it. This is, uh, I'm sure it affected their ego quite a bit. The Golden State Warriors, they're playing the Los Angeles Clippers at home, and they had a 31-point lead and lost the game. I'm just, is this like for, is this like for ratings so it'll extend the series? Do people from ESPN say, hey, guys, you know, if you guys end the series too early. We lose out on about $10 million of commercials. I'm not sure what happens. But 31-point lead. Blown. Gone. And I've been, I participated in sports. We had the lead. You go into the fourth quarter and you lose. That is painful. Any athletes can remember? I see some heads nodding. Yeah, that's right. Oh, painful, isn't it? Because you always say, this moment is the moment in front of me. This play is the play in front of me. And if you can live life that way, this day is the day in front of me. Amen. So for you, even today, how will you live this day? Will you live this day in view of a savior that is coming again? This is what Peter is saying. The end of all things is near. But let's consider something else. Peter and the Lord's prayer. Still building up this thought of the Lord is near because it influences everything else in this passage, we have to remember something, that um, the, the context for every biblical writer. And what do I mean by that? For instance, um, Paul writes as one who has this distinguished Jewish religious pedigree. But he also wrote as one who was vehemently opposed to the gospel message, did he not? And that influenced his writings. Paul would do what? As he was saw, what did he do? He persecuted. And even at the feet they would lay their, cloak, their, their coats at the feet of Saul as Stephen was being stoned. He opposed the gospel. But yet, do you not believe that's, that has an influence on his letters? Why would he say I'm the chief of all sinners? Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. Why would he in Philippians talk about, here is my pedigree as a Benjamite and a Hebrew of Hebrews, but he says ultimately that means nothing to me whatsoever. So they write with a perspective. Peter also writes with a perspective. I mean, he is one who intimately walked with the Lord. Yet, we can say that he thought too much of his faith 
and too little of the power of the flesh. When he said, Lord, even if all others deny you, I will do what? Oh, no, I won't. But we know that it happened. He denied the Lord. But we also remember how the Lord so effectively and gently restored Peter. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Then 10, watch over, shepherd my sheep. And obviously, having had that experience, influences how he writes 1 Peter chapter 5, does it not? It influences that. What other influences might he have had? Remember, Peter has denied the Lord. And there is Peter by the fire, and he sees the Lord. And he is seeing how the Lord is responding to his detractors and those that were persecute him. And he learned a valuable lesson firsthand. He would know how Jesus Christ was beaten, how Jesus Christ was spat upon, and how he responded. He would know how he responded on the cross. He would know that he would say to a man who was a former criminal, and he would say to a man, today you shall be with me. Where? I love that. I mean, I have like quoted that a thousand times in my Christian life. And uh, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's mind-boggling. I mean, I really have. I, uh, th- how many times have I referred to that just in reading? I've read it and I've heard it preach and I reference it in preaching. And every time I do, it just stirs up something in me to say, what a savior. Hallelujah. Amen. <laughs> He's a wonderful savior that he would say today. You shall be with me in paradise. Oh, amazing. Amazing. He would see that he would know these things. And Peter witnessed, remember, the transfiguration of Christ. And I believe that might have some influence on what he writes about holiness and the glory of God. It influences him. But it's also interesting to note as well, according to Luke's account, Matthew and Mark don't record the fact that they were asleep. In Luke um, 9, uh, what is it, 28 to 36, look with me there for a moment. Luke 9, 28. Yeah, Luke 9. And sometimes I think I ask people to turn to scripture texts just because I love hearing the pages of the Bible. Turn. <laughs> it's like I just, I think someday it would just be, hey, can you turn here? Can you turn here? Go with me to Malachi. Go with me to Haggai. And just to kind of just do it for about 10 minutes and it would just be a, sort of like a preacher's high, amen? <laughs> I mean, I could imagine. I mean, these churches where people don't even bring the Bible have gone to some of those. I look around. No one has a Bible. Well, no need for it because he's not using it. But what a great sound. I still have this idea because I know some of you have iPads and iPhones and things like that to create some app where you can at least get a sound, you know. (laughs) Wouldn't that be neat? Come on, someone here can do it. Like when your iPad... Oh, come on, that would be wonderful. Yeah, then it would just amplify the sound. And I, I'm quite serious about it. Then here's this reality that we're looking at the Word of God. And God is speaking to people. And He's speaking to you. And He's speaking to you in His Word. It's a wonderful sound. Notice Luke chapter 9, 28. Luke 9, 28. Now, 
We're talking about prayer this morning. We are going to get to it. Trust me. Notice what it says, but I have to set this up for the rest of the passage as well. So eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter, John, and James and went up to the mountain to do what? Pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his faith became, face, sorry, became, slow down a little bit, Hargrove, became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which was about to accomplish, he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. But then they're awakened, and they realize what has happened, and Matthew and Mark tell us about wanting to build the tabernacles here, but they missed out on something. They missed out on some of that experience because they had been overcome with sleep. Overcome with sleep. The hour is coming. Don't be asleep. Jesus Christ spoke constantly of his hour, his hour, especially in the Gospel of John. My hour, my hour. And eventually that hour came. And he would give his life as a ransom for many. Now we're in this hour. Think about Peter. He thought perhaps too much of his faith and too little of the power of the flesh. And he said, I would never deny you. And what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus Christ came to wake the disciples three times. Could you not watch for me for one hour three times and maybe it's interesting to note that Peter would deny the Lord three times we have to avoid the failure of Peter and others not just him by being people who have the right mindset for prayer the right mindset for prayer go back to 1 Peter 4 1 Peter 4 1 Peter 4, the mindset for a prayerful life. So the motivation is clear. The end of all things is near. Think eschatologically and allow that to influence your life. Be a person of prayer. Be a person that loves. Be a person that gives. Be a person that serves. What is the mindset for a prayerful life? Notice what he says in verse 7. Therefore, in light of this reality... Be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. This first word, sound judgment, interesting. In Mark chapter 5, Luke chapter 8, it refers to a person who is in a proper state of mind as opposed to someone who is demon-possessed. But the word really has this idea of being cool-headed, a balanced mind, self-control, to be sensible. In Titus 2, 6, um, it's communicated to the men that young men are to be sensible. Why does he say young men are, be, are to be sensible? Because they have the propensity at times to be what? Yes, indeed. What are you thinking? Why did you do that? To not be sensible, to not be cool-headed. So the opposite of cool-headed is what? Say it with me. Thank you. Hot-headed, and a person makes a hot-headed decision, and there are often consequences to pay for that. He says, young men, don't be hot-headed. Be sensible. Be level-headed. Be self-controlled. Use sound judgment in life. 
It's important. You know, and then he says, sober-minded. Now, I believe just because of the construction of the verse itself, both these words are really synonymous. They're joined together to say, here's a mindset that you were to have if you were to be a person of meaningful prayer. But there is a bit of a nuance with this word sober-minded. And I think Paul, Peter, that is, is clearly contrasting the form of behavior. Notice verse 3. <clears throat> so he says here, be sober-minded as opposed to what? What would be the opposite of sober? Drunken. And he says, that was your former life in verse 3, sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties. But now instead, be a person that's sober-minded. I mean, we've already established this context of warfare uh, in Peter, beginning uh, with chapter 1, verse 13, but also in chapter 4, verse 1. Because what did he say there? As we looked at several weeks ago, arm yourselves with the same purpose. So we see throughout arming and warfare, be sober-minded. If you are not sober-minded, you won't meet your objective. Look with me. We already looked at chapter 1, verse 13, where he says, keep sober in spirit. But also look at chapter 5. Chapter 5. Again, this idea of warfare, but also this sense in which one has to be sober Focus, level-headed, cool-headed. He says in verse 8, 1 Peter 5, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your, advers- your adversary, the devil, rose, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to do what? Devour. Be alert. I have a picture. This was years ago um, when I was actually in uh, Zimbabwe. And I was there training pastors in, in the area. And they took us out to a, a game reserve. And then they took us to a park. Uh, and this was just for cats. Um, but, of course, in Africa, cats are not cats or kitties. <laughs> cats and, and snakes. So I got to see a black mamba, which is pretty amazing, um, in a closed-off cage by itself. And they literally said, some of the other snakes, they'll go in and feed it, throw it a rodent. They don't do it with the black mamba. They just drop it in from the top, that's it. Um, to the point where they say they're territorial, which is unusual for a snake. You're in my area. They'll come out of a tree and chase someone. Pretty amazing what a black mamba would do. But we went to the place where we saw these cats and huge lions. And um, there were two cubs. Um, they said, you can actually hold them if you'd like. I said, hey, fun, let's do it. Uh, right, I'll take this off my bucket list. And I did. And I have a picture of it to prove it. I don't have it here. Uh, it's somewhere on my Facebook, I think. So I have one like this, and I'm holding him like this. And I thought, wait a minute. Now, if he got a little antsy, <laughs> and I look kind of peeled back, and gosh, it was he could really do damage to me if he wanted to. But they were used to it, so I had him like this. And then I said, hey, get a picture of me. No one's going to believe it, right? So... But what's interesting in the picture is his brother was right behind me. And there's this look, and it's the greatest picture. His brother is behind me, sort of like, what's he doing to my little brother? I may want to pounce on it. <laughs> I wasn't even aware of it. I wasn't, I wasn't alerted to what was behind me. Nothing ever happened. You know, I'm here. My face has no scars on it. So I survived. But I thought about that idea of alertness, being around your environment. 
And like that black mamba, the sense when you can be going, he says, you have to have an awareness. It will just drop out of the tree. And so you have 30 minutes for anti-venom. And if you're in the boonies, it's just start praying and singing Kumbaya, my Lord, right? <laughs> yeah, just start taking notes. Baby, I love you. Wish sat it in this way. Um, you get the house, they get the car. My favorite verse is Isaiah, you know, six, one through five, you know, things like that, because it's not happening. You're going to die. This sense of awareness is necessary. You're involved in a warfare. And he's saying prayer is absolutely necessary for it. So don't be drunk. What he's saying, be sober-minded. Don't have an intoxicated mind. Don't let your thinking be fuzzy. Be clear-headed. The question comes up, you, um, what happens when a person is intoxicated? Well, a number of things happen. Their vision is impaired. Uh, their response system is impaired as well. It's slowed down. Hearing is impaired. Strength, although they may think mentally that they're stronger, they actually are not. And there's certain phases that one goes to when it comes to intoxication, but maybe for another time. See, if you're intoxicated, you don't think properly. And when one has drunk, had too much, they do what? How do they walk? They stagger around. And eventually, you'll feel some, someone will do what? Boom, just fall over. Because they've taken in too much alcohol, and the liver just cannot break it down. And that finds its way through parts of the brain. It has control of other parts of how we think and hear and have our motor skills. It affects us. It says, don't be a drunkard. Be someone that's sober. Because Jesus Christ is coming back again. So this third consideration, the practice of a prayerful life. So we've looked at the motivation for it. We looked at the mindset for it. But what about the practice of a prayerful life? The practice of it. He says, notice, for the purpose of prayer. Let me break this down for you this way. First, the definition. The definition of prayer. He says, okay, for the purpose of prayer. What is prayer? Uh, I believe that in the verse itself, what we've already looked at helps us understand even the definition of prayer. So prayer must be intelligible because if I'm of sound judgment and sober-minded for the purpose of prayer, that means that it must be intelligent. We would say that it should be selfless because I'm living in light of the Lord's return again. I'm not thinking so much about myself. And we can also say that prayer should be intense. Now, the word that's used here for prayer is its most general word. But what's interesting about what Paul Peter does, I keep saying Paul, Peter does, he says the purpose of prayer. So he uses a plural form. And why does he use a plural form? He says all aspects of prayer. Make sure that you're engaged in them. And perhaps he uses that form to say, yes, you're going through difficulty. Yes, you're going through heartache. You're suffering. But don't let your prayer be somewhat myopic and only pray about the things that have to do with your suffering. Make sure that you're involved in intercession and thanksgiving and confession and all aspects of prayer. Is what he says. Prayer, if we think about what is prayer? I mean, prayer is what Hannah communicated. Remember, she was faced with the stigmatism of being barren. And when the priest thought that she was drunk, she said, what? Oh, no, my Lord, 
First Samuel chapter one, he says, I'm pouring out my heart before the Lord. Prayer is what Moses would be involved in intercession for the people of God. This is prayer. Calvin said that prayer is the lifeblood of the Christian. It's also interesting if you look at Calvin's Institutes, which is essentially his theology, that the longest chapter in Calvin's Institutes deals with prayer. With prayer. Why is that? Why, why is that the longest chapter in his Institutes? Perhaps because although Calvin, with his you know, theological acumen that he had, he realized that uh, despite my knowledge, then if I do not pray, it's all in vain. Ministry's in vain. I have to go before the Lord. Listen to what Calvin also said. He says, our prayer must not be self-centered. It must arise not only because we feel our own burden <clears throat> we must lay upon God, but also because we're so bound up in love for our fellow men that we feel their need as acutely as our own. To make intercession for men is the most powerful and practical way in which we express our love for them. And I love that line, especially when he says, we feel their need as acutely as our own. So we do weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. If you want to love someone, pray for them. Be sober-minded. Be of good judgment and pray. Listen to what John Bunyan said. John Bunyan said this of prayer. Pray often, for prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge for Satan. And at last part, a scourge for Satan. Because if one is engaged in intimate communion with God, then I cannot be loving the Lord and engaged with God, but also loving the world. I will eventually grow and have a disdain for the world because I'm closer to the Lord. It's what the psalmist would communicate. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And if you taste that the Lord, you don't, don't really want the things of the world. Now, here's reality. All of us, in some measure, still have some appetite for the things of the world. That's reality. But what we're doing in our lives is striving more and more to be like Christ. Prayer is really a surrender of ourselves before the Lord. It was Jonathan Edwards who said, there is no way that Christians in a private capacity can do so much to promote the work of God and advance the kingdom of God as by prayer. If we want to advance God's kingdom, pray. We look at history and Christ's example being devoted to prayer. The apostles in the early churches, they would pray. Remember, they established what? We must give ourselves to what? Prayer and the study of the word. The reformers, as they were battling for souls, men of prayer. William Carey, as his faith to reach the, the people of India, prayer. I remember now, it's almost 30 years ago, reading Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. And what was that spiritual secret? It was prayer. We know the stories of a George Mueller and him praying and the Lord providing even for millions prayer. Charles Spurgeon, we know Charles Spurgeon and what was a part of the secret to his pulpit that would reach millions. It was his boiler room as he had people literally in the boiler room that were praying as he would be preaching the word of God. And millions would be reached. 
Listen to Amy Carmichael, who would cry to the Lord and ask for Lord's direction and protection and provision as she would minister. So the question for, for you, what will be your role in history? And we don't pray to have our name referred to um, 50 years from now when someone's preaching. And my prayer life, if I remember to put your name there, he was a person of prayer or she was a person of prayer. We don't pray to that end, but we do pray to the end that says the Lord is near. Let me be sober and of sound judgment and let me commune with God. But prayer can be hard, though. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I know. It can be hard. And even Luther recognized it. Listen to what he said. The hardest work of all, a labor above all labors, since he who prays much wage a mighty war against the doubt and murmuring excited by the faint-heartedness and unworthiness we feel within us. So what was he saying? It's a hard work, but it's a necessary work. What about the example of prayer? The example of it, biblical example of what we might say are sober prayers. Not only the prayers themselves, but we might say praying people. Jesus Christ, 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus Christ would go often. He would go away. He would go to the mountain. Hannah and her heartfelt prayers, but also in chapter 2, her very theological prayers. Daniel would pray three times a day. Hezekiah would come to the end of himself and realize that I have to seek the Lord against these overwhelming Assyrians who surround us. Nehemiah, who would pray before the Lord and ask, Lord, have the king give me favor as I request. And then his majestic prayers that you see later in the book. Samuel, the prophet, was even res- he was resolved that he would pray so much so that in 1 Samuel 12 and 23, he says, Moreover for me that I should not pray for you and sin against the Lord. He saw it as a sin to not pray for those that he would influence. And of course, Paul in his many prayers. Let me end with this, the method of prayer. I'm going to give you seven words and just maybe a sentence with each one. Seven words that will help us in our method of prayer. Words that help frame a method. Number one, thoughtful. Our prayers must be thoughtful. The text has already told us that. Sober and sound. Number two, our prayers must be selfless. Selfless. Because the person is level-headed... They are thinking rightly about themselves. They're thinking rightly about the Lord. They're thinking rightly about their future. And they're not fixed on the temporal and material. They're fixed on the eternal. So selfless. Number three, consistent. Prayers must be consistent. Sometimes you may get discouraged. You didn't pray this day. You didn't pray as much as you'd like. But you always fight for consistency. The scripture tells us what? We are to pray without ceasing an attitude of prayer. An attitude of prayer. Number four, prioritize. Prioritize. If the key to any relationship is communication, I think we'd all agree with that. One of the keys to any relationship is what? Communication. Then our prayer to God for ourselves and others must be primary. Prioritize it. One may say, I don't have time. No, you aren't making time. I've never gone through a day in my life where I can honestly say, if I had not prayed, that I legitimately, honestly, objectively did not have time. I simply chose not to make it. 
if a person that you're engaged with or um, friend, relative, uh, spouse, loved one, and imagine if you chose not to speak to them for long periods of time, what would that say about your relationship? You don't care. It's not a priority. Organized, our fifth word, organized. Order helps fight the wandering mind. Organize it. Things that you can pray for, have a list, put it before you. Organize. Number six is this. But yeah, organize is great, but also this, spontaneous. Spontaneous. Prayer is communication with the Lord. And there are going to be opportunities when things come to mind, people come to mind, something is on your heart, and you may be walking down the street. You could be on a bus. You could be at a doctor's office, wherever you may be. It may be between here and the main service. Let it be spontaneous because this is a relationship. It can't always be, here's my time to pray to the Lord, Tuesday mornings, Thursdays, and Saturdays. And if you did that in a relationship with your spouse or with a friend, I only talk to you here. Well, I'd like to, some things on my heart. I'm sorry, put in a number. Um, I'll schedule you later. You wouldn't do that. There has to be spontaneity because it's a relationship. Number seven, our seventh word is this, worshipful. Worshipful. Prayer is communion that is directed to God. And therefore, it's an act of worship. I wish I had time. I wanted to look at Revelation and how the prayers of the people are an incense before the throne and an incense before God. It is worshipful. God desires it. Revelation 5, 8, Revelation 8, 3, and 4. Be worshipful in your prayer. It's a battle worth winning. We're in a fight. Francis Schaeffer said this, we are not building God's kingdom. God is building his kingdom. And we are praying for the privilege of being involved. Amen. What a privilege that you can serve the Lord. What an honor that you can actually pray to him and he hears your every thought. Father, we thank you for your goodness, grace, and mercy. I pray that you'll bless the rest of our day as we seek to be sober-minded. Amen.